Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I just spoke with Federico Marcone about his new book, The Knowledge of Nature and the Nature of Knowledge in Early Modern Japan. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2015. Now, the interview is fairly extensive, so I will keep this intro brief and just say this is a book that spans many different disciplines, and we could easily have been talking for the Science Studies channel or for Cultural Studies. It's a book that is accomplishing a really difficult task of speaking coherently to a number of different disciplines and fields. What it does is it charts transformations in the practices, the discourses, the spaces, the objects, the materials, the names that are involved in knowing something about nature from about the beginning of the 17th century until the late part of the 19th century. And it focuses on Japan specifically while being careful to show ways that the transformations that he's charting in Japan mirror in some ways, look like in some ways, the kinds of transformations that listeners and readers might be familiar with in a context of the history of Europe, but are not shaped by those European um, Western, if we might call them that, stories. It's a really, really interesting, very comprehensive account, and it's a a really fascinating story. So it was great fun to talk with Federico about it, and I hope you both enjoy the book and enjoy the conversation to come. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Federico Marcone about his new book, The Knowledge of Nature and the Nature of Knowledge in Early Modern Japan. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Federico, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure for me to be here. So this is a great pleasure for me, too, and it's a special pleasure because the book simultaneously contributes to so many different disciplinary specialties in so many different fields. So we could easily have been talking Um, for new books in STS right now, because it really does simultaneously contribute to um, history of Japan, East Asian studies, um, uh, natural history, science studies, and also cultural theory. So um, so let's get into it, um, because I'm very excited about this one. (laughs) Thank you. So Federico, let's start, as is traditional for the channel, by, by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field. How did you come to work on Japan and to early modern Japan specifically? Well, it's in part by chance, in part by plan. So I started to be interested in Japan specifically and Japanese history when it was actually middle school. Wow. But I never initially thought about having a career in East Asian studies or studying Japanese as my own profession. So I wanted, I always wanted to do philosophy, really, the history of philosophy in particular. But then for a number of circumstances, I happened to end up doing East Asian studies at the University of Venice in Italy. And since the very beginning, I was doing East Asian philosophy, the history of philosophy of Japan or history of ideas in Japan. And uh, then they moved to the United States. And when intellectual history at the beginning of the 21st century was not really, really popular any longer. And I found ways in which I could channel my own interest in the history of ideas into a, a more transdisciplinary study that is what, at the end of it, is, the book is all about. So the book puts forward a series of arguments or a number of arguments. And what I'm going to do 
um, just right at the beginning at this point, is lay out some of them so that listeners have a sense of um, the, the nature of the book that we're talking about, which is a book about nature. And it's also not about nature, but we'll get to that. Right. Um, so one of the major arguments of the book is that during the Tokugawa period, and this is roughly um, 1600 to 1868, in, in the words of the um, beginning of the book, Japan began a process of desacralizing, that's going to be important, listeners, desacralizing right. the natural environment in the form of a systematic study of natural objects that was surprisingly similar to, to European natural history without being directly influenced by it. And that last part right. is also going to be important. So the book is focusing on practices and practitioners from the late 16th through the mid-19th centuries, and it's going to show the eventual objectification, that's important listeners, right, an objectification of natural species that populated Japan. This is going to involve the commodification of plants and mm -hmm. animals, right, that transform them into physical commodities, and also intellectual commodities. And we'll talk about both right. of those kinds of um, objectification. It also involved an effort to produce faithful pictorial representations of plants and animals in the second half of the Tokugawa period as part of this objectification. We'll talk about the imaging um, uh, as part of these practices as well. It centers on some aspects of the history of a field called Honzogaku, but we're going to talk about the ways in which it departs from that um, as well. Okay, so that's, I'm just laying out some basic foundations there. How did you come to focus on this particular topic, Federico? What brought you to this focus for your research? Right. Initially, when I was completing my PhD at Columbia University, I wanted to write a dissertation uh, to satisfy a curiosity. So, after the Tokugawa period, at the beginning of the uh, 1600s, cultural producers, or those who wrote, book, wrote texts, or especially philosophical texts, were either monks in, in different Buddhist temples, or were uh, a couple of dozens of uh, teachers in the imperial court in Kyoto. And that's it. All in a sudden, Tokugawa Japan, or so the secondary sources tell us, all of a sudden, you have scholars and thinkers debating, publishing books, opening schools, talking about ideas, and so on and so forth. So my initial interest is how did it happen? What is the process whereby you have scholars all of a sudden, socially recognizable as such? And it's an enormous field. It's an, it was an enormous project. And to be really to tackle in, in his abstractness and generality. And I thought that Honzogaku, this particular discipline, and was particularly apt to, for me to, to answer this set of questions at the time of the dissertations. First, because it was a discipline that only became an autonomous discipline in the Tokugawa period. Second, because it was surprising how many of the prominent thinkers dealt uh, in, in their own careers with Honzogaku. Third, because of the interest that Honzogaku had at the time in terms of people, amateurs, performing or doing it, collecting animals and plants or publishing books and so forth. So it was interesting in itself. But at the beginning or at the, at the level of the dissertation, it was really uh, in. in uh, instrumental for me to get to the other question about the social life of scholars in Tokugawa Japan. 
When I started working on the book, instead, my question changed dramatically. And now my focus was how this discipline, and still I continue a social, social intellectual history of the practitioner of this discipline, but how this discipline really affected the way in which uh, the natural environment was conceived, thought uh, about, manipulated, and, 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 and changed in the Tokugawa period and, 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 and how this process affected the way in which Japan modernized in the Meiji and the modern period. So what stimulated this change in focus, right? So you've already said a little bit about um, what transformed from dissertation to book in terms of the project. Mm-hmm. Why, um, can you reconstruct for us, um, why do you think that is? Why, what led you to change your focus in that way? Now, in part, this new question uh, initially arose when I started dealing with my former question, my first question, that is to say, as soon as I start dealing with a material, many of my presuppositions or assumptions changed dramatically, and many of the questions that I initially posed myself changed accordingly. And I had really the time for me to honestly face them after I defended my dissertation, and I had the time at my disposal to think through about what I wanted to do with these material that I had at my disposal. This is internal reason, so to say. The external reason is that uh, in 2000, starting with 2008, 2009, uh, the, the, the subfield of, at the time was subfield really of, or emerging field of environmental history really demanded that more and more attention. And so also this external influence determined or affected the way in which I conceived my process, my, my, my project. Thank you so much, Federico. And let's actually get right into it now then. Let's get right into it. All right. Now, one of the really interesting things um, about the book for me, right, from my perspective as a reader, I'm, I'm always attentive to and interested in the way authors have decided to structure their book. And the book is mm-hmm. structured in a series of parts, right, part mm-hmm. one, two, three, etc., with chapters embedded um, mm-hmm. uh, within them. Now, but one of the really striking things here is that you open each one of the parts with an epigraph. Um, mm-hmm. and these epigraphs are from you know, Adorno, Horkheimer. There's a bunch of different authors that mm-hmm. um, listeners and readers might not immediately associate with you know, mm-hmm. the study of Tokugawa Japan that you mm-hmm. are framing these parts within. So can you talk a little bit about that as a decision? Why, why and how is that important to you? Well... Uh, epigraphs. Uh, so there is two ways to answer this question. So epigraphs in books, for the most part, really has an aesthetic function. <laughs> that is to say, they make the, 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 the books look cooler <laughs> after a point, <laughs> or, 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 up, or a showing off, or whatever it is. But in my case, I, or definitely might be something of, of that showing off also embedded in my choice of epigraphs. But I wanted to, to reveal what were the sources, who contributed, the author that contributed to, 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 to stuff my conceptual toolkit that I used to, to read the primary sources. And a toolkit that has, that's been made by strategies of reading or strategies of expressing or developing my own arguments 
Dasumi cannot be separated from the content itself. So the form, it's, 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 it's as much important to create content than the content itself. So those are, epigraph for me are spines that open up what is the main problems of each part. You know, I always love um, when I have a sense that an author is bringing a very particular voice to mm-hmm. their work. And I think in asking, in, in reversing um, kind of the order that readers might usually encounter these kinds of influences, right? Rather than looking, having to look in the footnotes to see, you know, mm-hmm. how, you know, and the, my thinking on this is inspired by Adorno, et cetera. You're really putting that front and center in a way that's very stimulating and really interesting mm-hmm. and asks us to make juxtapositions and connections mm-hmm. that, you know, we might not otherwise. Mm-hmm. So as we move through the book, okay, there's a part one, which introduces the book and off, also offers a brief historical survey of pharmacology in China and Japan right. up to 1600. And I won't ask you to talk too much about that. Yeah. There's a lot in there, but I just want to mark that for listeners. Um, after that, we come to part two, ordering names 1607 to 1715. And this is mm-hmm. a part of the book that looks at the production and the circulation of encyclopedias in the 17th century. And as um, you put it here, the function of lexicographical research in accurately determining natural species. Now, the third chapter of the book focuses on a figure, Hayashi, uh, Hayashi Razan. Mm-hmm. He had presented the retired shogun Tokugawa Ieyasu with a printed copy of a little book called the Bensal Gongmu. Uh, just, you know, an incidental <laughs> right. book in the history of um, For listeners who don't know, um, this is, yeah, I have special feelings <laughs> through this book. Um, but he had presented um, Tokugawa Ieyasu with a printed copy of this text in 1607. Okay, so briefly, um, briefly put, um, can you briefly explain why this text in particular was so important for this context, right? Why would the um, retired shogun want this text in particular to be presented? So, two questions really here. The first one is that the Ben Salgamo, as you you know very well, and you 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 introduce it to to, to the English speaking world, is a fundamental text in East Asian history of pharmacology. It's it, it soon began when it was published in China in 1596, right? Uh, the most authoritative encyclopedia to produce drugs and collecting information about plants, animals, minerals, rocks, and, and, and what's not, uh, as the sources where all these drugs were constructed. When it arrived in Japan, it was introduced in Japan, so this is the narrative in the later reconstructed narrative of origins, 1607, when Hayashi Razan presented the book to Tokugawa Ieyasu, it, after this, soon became the, 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 the central uh, text, the canonical source for the entire field of Honzugaku or Materia Medica in Japan. And so remain throughout the period, to such an extent that, for example, one of the most important texts that were later produced by, Jap- by a Japanese scholar in, 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 18, in, in 1803, that it's really an annotation of, of Ben Salgamo. Uh, the title was Honzo Komoku. Uh, Honzo Komoku is the is the Japanese readings of the Chinese character for Ben Salgamo. Honzo Komoku Kemo is the title of this book, and it's just annotations or further elucidations on the Ben Salgamo. So this book was fundamental throughout the period. And 
this is the first question that you asked. The second question is, Hayashi Razan was collecting books for his own private library that soon would become the library of the shogunate, the Bakufu itself. It's Domimichi Yamabunko. It grew exponentially since the time of the first three shoguns. It was moved from the Fushimi castle when originally Ieyasu lived, and then later on it was moved to Edo. But it was really constructed since the beginning, have the central, central repositories of the most important books that were circulating in East Asia. Similar to the, to, to the idea behind the, the Congress Library in the United States. So Tetsuya Ieyasu wanted to have the library that contained all the great books that were produced in the world. And Ben Salgamo was supposed to be a part of this library. Now, this part of the book, part two, is looking very carefully at the emergence of what you call a new socio-professional identity of scholars. Yes. And so the social context within which scholars, um, including Hayashi Razan, but then we're going to look at others too, mm-hmm. were able to do their work and the changes in that context becomes a really, really important part of the story here. In yes. this chapter, in chapter three, you talk about the importance in this particular case of shogunal patronage, right? patronage mm-hmm. by the shogun for Razan's work. Um, and it yeah. was very minimal patronage, but it was still really important for him in terms of his social, mm-hmm. uh, social mm-hmm. identity. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So just to frame it, my answer a little bit, to, to reveal a little bit about the structure of the book. So the book is strictly chronological in, in his arrangement. So, and the, the different narratives that proceed throughout the books are all chronologically organized. So, is, if I follow the chronology of the development of Hodogaku as a discipline, at the same time, I also follow the chronology of the development of the social professional identity of scholars at the time. And that being my concern since the time of my work in a dissertation. Hayashi Razan, he's one of the most debated and discussed scholar in the field of Japanese studies, especially early modern intellectual history, in part because of what Maruyama Masao uh, made of him, or he elevated him as a kind of a ideological persona behind the constructions of the shogunate itself. Later on in the in the eighties, Hermann Hums uh, really. Uh, deconstructed Maruyama's argument. It must be remembered that Maruyama developed that book, uh, the Nihon Seiji Shisoshi Kenkyo, or Studies in Intellectual History or Political History, Intellectual History of Japanese Politics, was written right after World War II, and Maruyama Sao wanted really to give an explanation for what went wrong with Japanese modernity in the 20s and the 30s and, and later on in the Pacific Wars. And to him, Hayashi Razan was the founders of the Tokugawa Bakufu, the ideological founder. Ums deconstructed this narrative. He showed that it was not the case. He, he, he showed that other sources served to build up the ideological legitimation to the Bakufu, like Buddhist temples or the connection to the imperial house and so forth. And Hayashi Razan was marginalizing this. He was just a guy, really a librarian, a, a bookworm it was proficient in Chinese, so Tokugawa Ieyasu used him to, to write letters, to send letter, official letters to, to China or to Korea, and so forth. So, minimal part. However, symbolically to me, it's very important because it is really the first person that, however, his rank was very low, 
he was admitted to the private chambers of Shobun Tokugawa Ieyasu. And as a uh, known monk, or uh, as, as, as really a professional scholar, he was really the first one who was allowed really to write books on Confucianisms or, or on scholarships in general, to give public lectures on these issues and so forth. So it is really the beginning, the emergence, the early stages of the formations of the scholars that was socially recognized as such. In the first century, the first, that is part two of the book, the first century of the development, I wanted to give a sense really of development, how things happened by, as, as a result of social changes, social changes as a result of different mechanisms without recurring to any kind of universal. That is to say, there is such a thing as, as the scholars. Scholars always existed, intellectual always existed. I wanted to see who were they, how did they envision their own scholarly work. So you have on the one hand Hayashi Razan who work closely to the shogunate. But you have other scholars like another person that I tackle in part two, which is Kaibara Kiken, who was a retainer of a dominal lord in the Kurodo domain in the island of Kyushu. And for him, first of all, he was a samurai. He conceived of himself as a retainer. And his own main obligation was to serve his lord and his skills were, were intellectual, where scholarly output was the way in which he envisioned he could be of service of his own lord. So he was a scholar, envisioned of his being a samurai. Only later in, in the period, only in the 18th century, you start seeing scholars that were really uh, living by, by, by the results of their being scholars. So having a schools, opening up a schools, or through the royalties from the published book, and so on and so forth. So I wanted to show the different kinds of way in which a scholar could be a scholar, and he depended largely on his own social trajectory, uh, either as a retainer, or as a known uh, ma- a masterless samurai, or a tutor, or later on those who opened their own school, etc., and chapter five actually gives, uh, among other things, a really nice introduction to Ekiken's work. Yes. Um, you look specifically at the Yamato Honzo. Mm-hmm. Talk about the ways that this is, as you call it, um, the first genuinely Japanese encyclopedia of natural yeah. history, right? And this is part of his larger program of moral education. Mm-hmm. So this becomes really important um, for, for many reasons, but in part because... You're showing us in this part of the book that not only are there many ways of being a scholar, right? And this itself mm-hmm. has a history, but there are also many ways of being an encyclopedia. And there are many yes. ways of being a text about plants and animals. And in this part of the book, we also see a transformation um, in that respect. And you're, yes. you're kind of charting a circulation of encyclopedias like the mm-hmm. Bensal Ganglu and others, Chinese and Japanese encyclopedias, mm-hmm. um, and showing us how they shaped natural knowledge in 17th century Japan. Yes. And Ekiken's work, as uh, along with that of others, um, is really a, um, a transformation from the work that you presented when we you know, looked at Hayashi Razan, um, etc. So this is a transformation in this part of the book in many respects. And we come now then in a way that I'm going to horribly um, blitz over uh, probably, you know, lots and lots of pages of fascinating stuff. So listeners, please read the book because um, we're already coming to part three. 
<laughs> okay. That quick. Okay, so part three, and just trust me on this. So part three of the book, after we um, you know, have discussed and read about these transformations, it brings us into the period 1716 to 1736, and into this 18th century period that you began talking about just yeah. before. This part of the book looks um, very particularly, among other things, at the organization of the nationwide survey in 1736 yes. of natural species under Tokugawa um, Yoshimune, and also the recruitment of Honzogaku specialists in the state apparatus. So this kind of yes. professionalization, right, under yes. the state that you were alluding to before. It talks, among other things, about the ways that the shogunal patronage that we started talking about in the previous part of the book um, mm-hmm. really like kind of blooms and the, the patronage of natural studies in the mid 18th century changes, as you put it here, the social composition of Honzugaku practitioners and also shifts the study of plants and animals to make it a, a discipline, a specialized discipline in its own right. Okay. Yes. So one of the things that's happening um, along these lines is happening in chapter six. This is a chapter that looks at Yoshimune's impact on the Bakfu's economic politics and scholarly yeah. world, and it focuses in particular on his reforms in agriculture. Right? Um, yes. This is really important. So can you say a little bit about, for you, um, what's most important for us to understand about his agricultural reforms in the larger context of the arguments you're making in this part of the book? Yes. So to me... Yoshimune is, and Yoshimune's impact on the field of Honzogaku is really one of the key turning points of the entire story. So part three for me is when you have something start changing dramatically. Yoshimune in general, he's the eighth shogun of, of the Tokugawa, uh, was, was, is particularly important because it changed many aspects. It changed the nature of the Bakufu in many respects. The, the, his importance in, in the development on the trajectory of Honzogaku to me is fundamental because before that you have a different, as I said, different variety of scholars that were producing texts, mostly manuscripts, on Honzogaku, mostly really where Materia Medica, where the final instrumental use of these books, where encyclopedias were producing drugs, producing me- medicines, and so forth. But these were all polymaths. So Ikiken, for example, or Hayashi Razan, or many others, they were writing other in other fields, in ethics, politics, they would write about technology in general. So Honzogaku, or Materia Medica, was just one of their own specialties. But as a result of Yoshimuna's patronage, you start having a dramatic change in the way in which Materia Medica itself and its utility was perceived. First, it's only, it was only after Yoshimune that you start seeing, actually, scholars who were specializing, just doing that, just reading Honzogaku, and that's it. Not being polymaths, but really specializing in Materia Medica. Second, Honzogaku stopped really to be just simply Materia Medica, but they start thinking about collecting information about plants, animals, minerals, and so forth. They could have other utilizations for agriculture, for, for even for aesthetic purposes, and so forth. Third is that the shogunate really starts in, in institutionalizing these professionals in, 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 in its own machinery. 
And it followed also deep changes in, in the way in which the shogunate really perceived the uh, samurai role in the overarching economic control or development of Japan. Now, I, I, res- I, I may start talking about for, for hours about this, <laughs> you know, it has to do with the with the completion of the monetizations of the economy, the construction of a, a, a really integrated market inside the different provinces of Japan, massive change, really, in the economic infrastructure of Japan, and having a, or enhancing agricultural output, enhancing production, and for, for that aim, for that goal, really hiring specialists on, 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 on plants and animals was what, may, what, is, what is a turning point, really, of, for the field. It was not just an ancillary field for medicinal studies, but it was a field of disciplines that in itself could be of use for the state in different kinds of realms. And lastly, one of the other impacts that, that the, 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 the surveys that Yoshimune actually sponsored in 1736, uh, one of the impact it had on the discipline is that it's, it, it's only after this that images in Honzogaku monographs, monographs or encyclopedias or manuals started playing a very fundamental role in the productions of Honzogaku scholars. So all of this happened as a result of the surveys that were organized in 1736 and uh, the, the purpose of which was to inventory all natural richness of the archipelago. The, 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 the purpose of it was to cut the reliance of very expensive imports from, from China and the Korean Peninsula. Just to give you an example, one of the most fundamental ingredients to produce medicines was ginseng. Mm-hmm. Most of ginseng was introduced right, from Choson, Korea. And just one single dose could cost up to one ryo, one gold coin, that was up to almost one year's stipend of the lowest rank samurai. So it was extremely expensive. And as a result of the uh, introduction of so many medicinal resources, plants, roots, and so forth from China, that the Tokugawa started to dispatch these specialists all over Japan to find all the riches and to start really developing and, 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 and exploiting really the natural resources of Japan and also to start the process of producing or cultivating in Japan of those uh, herbs and plants that were not growing there. So introduced from, from China. This is the story that is developed for, uh, fully in part fourth. But it, that is the beginning point, really. The state, start, the state in, 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 in this case, in the form of the shogunate, starts to be actively interested in the field for the sake of its prosperity of, of the nation. Wonderful. Thank you. So I, great. <laughs> You've covered, I think, the major visas. I'll mention um, for listeners who are particularly interested in the ginseng story, there's mm. a lot um, of material about that in Chapter 6 in the context especially of um, the establishment and expansion of medicinal gardens yes. um, that you talk about. 
um, in that chapter. And there's also just a really fascinating account of this survey that you were talking about yes. in chapter seven. And, you know, one of the highlights for me um, of that chapter, chapter seven, and I won't talk too much about this so that we can move on because um, we already alluded to part four, but you talk about these village surveys yes. as sources. Um, and that, that just is, I okay, I have to ask you a little bit about that because, but, you know, the kind of document um, fetishist that I am. Um, I mean, these sources, these surveys, just look completely fascinating. Yes. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about... So it was a, this is one of the discoveries I made, one of the, the things that I stumbled that really forced me to reconsider a lot about what I was looking for. This is probably, as far as I know, the largest state-sponsored enterprise to survey the natural, natural, produce, natural producers of one single country ever performed thus far in the world. We can think about uh, Linnaeus Apostles, the 12 Apostles that they dispatch John Banks, uh, Thunberg, and, and the rest of them, that they, they, they start, they accompany all the imperial, ha- imperial flotilla of England and the Netherlands, later on of Sweden, and so forth, to collect the material. This is a later story, 50 years before Linnaeus and, and, and a half a century before the, his, his disciples, the Shogunate, dispatched this, how shall I put it, is a list. So what they did, they took the index of one of the, this encyclopedia of material medical that were developed. Is, it, was, it was produced roughly at the same time of Yamato Honzo, you mentioned before, is the Shobutsu Ruisan, which is the, the collection of all the plants that exist in the world, everything. They wanted to have really everything. They took the index of this of these books that was based on the classificatory system of Ben Zaudammo, once again, the canonical or, or, or template importance that Honzo Komoku, uh, Ben Zaudammo, played throughout the period. And they dispatched this questionnaire in all the villages, in all the domains throughout Japan. And as far as you know, non other country develops to such a capillary, ex- uh, capillary extent uh, a survey like this. And I just scraped the surface of what these sources really can give us. They are being, uh, they are published actually, actually in, 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 in Kagawa Shoten. It's a, it's a Japanese publisher specializing in the history of science. They are just uh, they are just photocopying of the original. They are not uh, re- reprinted. But what they contain, they give us the information about the, the biological variety the, of, of the different regions of Japan, how many there were estimates, of, local estimates of how many wolves, bears, deers, and if not really agricultural products and so forth, that were really growing and living in Japan at the time. They are very meticulously performed, and they were all collected in Edo and, and in, 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 in one of these offices, offices that the shogunate really established. And once they were collected, they were sent back to the different villages if there were any problem. That is to say, Honomin, Honomins played was one of the big problems. That is to say, you have plants that have the same name, but they they might point to different plants. So what the the, the, the main editor of, of these surveys really requested the different villages was to give a picture, send a picture of the plants you mentioned, you call such and such. Mm. 
Or you might have the same plants that have different names, local names. So the names that up to the throughout the 17th century were the focal point of all encyclopedias, following the traditions of Ben Salamo and so forth, now were replaced by images. In order to make sense, really, about what do you mean by this name of a plant or these animals? Is it really what the sources mean by such and such a name? In order to solve all these puzzles, these questions, these aporias and dilemmas, pictures were the solutions. As a result of it, we have, well, in, in modern edition, you have more than 20 volumes of 800 pages each that collects all the results of these uh, surveys with all the images and so forth that are collected. So it's an incredible source of information. For me, it's pivotal for the transformations it brings to the field of Onzogako. But one can really use them to have to perform research on the uh, biological history or historical biology of the period. So current and future doctoral students take note. Yeah, no, an it, amazing archive. It's like. sitting there and, and, and it's not even so expensive. And you, one can purchase in the used bookseller in Japan for, for, less, than a, for, for less than $500. So it, it's sitting there awaits for further research. Even in Japanese, uh, even, even Japanese scholars haven't really uh, developed so many studies of this service. They're, they're waiting for somebody to, to do that. So this you you've just mentioned and invoked the importance of images um, and pictures, yeah. and this really nicely takes us into the next part of the book. Part four takes us into what you call the long 18th century, right, mm-hmm. 1730s to 1840s, and it mm-hmm. looks at the way that natural history was popularized in this long 18th century and pays special attention to um, cultural circles, to collections, to exhibitions, to other forms of entertainment. Now, we won't have time to talk about all of the really fascinating things that are happening, so I'll just mark some of them and and ask you to talk a little bit about some in particular. Um, There's a whole chapter on um, the kind of national craze for botany. Um, You take us into um, a context in which there's now an emergence of parades um, or an interest in parades of rare and exotic animals, a development of botanical gardens, new horticultural techniques, um, and a trend um, for collecting insects and other animals. And this is all um, uh, part of Chapter 8's exploration of natural history as pastime and as form Mm -hmm. of entertainment. We then move to a chapter that looks very closely at the idea of nature as an intellectual commodity. Okay, so if mm-hmm. um, in chapter eight um, that, that I just described, nature is a material commodity. Okay? Mm-hmm. And we kind of talked about this very briefly in the introduction to this interview. Um, so nature is a material commodity to be collected, to be paraded, to be displayed, to be cultivated. Here we have nature as an intellectual commodity for cultural right. clubs and circles that engage samurai, commoners, or a combination of both. Now you note here that this is a this is a really important part of the story because these clubs, these circles, um, become really important in shaping the socio-professional identity of scholars. Yeah. But since that's a recurring theme throughout the book, can you talk about that, about the importance of these clubs and circles right. in terms of the, the identity of these scholars? Yes, so following the chronology, 17th century was really the re-elaborations of all the materials coming from China, and the beginning of the 18th century was the the time when the state started to, you know, to have a very... Uh, 
pragmatic interest in natural knowledge or nature knowledge for, for the sake of economic growth and so forth. What I call the long 18th century and roughly all the 18th century plus 1840, what I, I, I wanted to bring back to life was the heyday of natural history as a pastime for different mm, social strata uh, in Japan. It's really it's similar to what 19th century natural history was in England. So uh, the favorite pastime of, of the gentlemen and, and, and everybody was playing with recognizing or counting the pistils of flowers to recognize what flower it was. So Or collecting ferns of seashells on the shore. It was something similar in Japan. And people from different social strata started to have a keen interest in collecting flowers or having pets for that sake or for that matter. Or visiting gardens and, 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 and being able to recognize uh, different flowers, different plants, and so forth. And it was all thoroughly commoditized. That is to say, you have the, the, from the, the seller of plants and animals that look at the countryside and bring their own, uh, their own shops selling uh, plants, and, uh, plants and flowers in, in, in the streets of Edo, it was commoditized by the fact that you can have pets. Most of them were introduced in Japan from the Dutch in, in Nagasaki. What was not, what was left from the different gifts that the shogun gave to the different domainal lord was selling food in the market. Exotic birds, parrots, parakeets, or, or whatever. You had also parades of weird animal elephants that were given as a present to Yoshimune parading from Nagasaki to Edo. Everybody was watching it. Of course, parades and the accumulation of animals, this is nothing new for this, not unique of Japan. It was done since the Middle Ages in Europe as well. That is to say, the exchange of gifts with exotic animals was one way to recognize the, 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 the prestige and the power of the monarch. The same thing similarly for Japan, the shogun has all in its interest to, to display these parades of animals as in a way to enhance it's is on charisma uh, as as the the, the 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 shogun of Japan, but it really cut through the social classes. And one way in which culture was consumed at the time was through, as as you said, cultural clubs. Now, it's very difficult to study cultural club because there are no sources that tells you what people do in cultural clubs. Really, they were gathering in a regular basis. For those of you who listen from the STS and, you know, the Lunar Clubs and the wonderful book about the Lunar Clubs is something that pop up, with, pop up to the mind. But in Japan, you, you have clubs in the countryside, in the urban center to compose poetry, to paint, to landscape painting, or to, to, to compose satirical poems. And many of these were honzogaku uh, circles. That is to say, people who collected flowers and, and, and showing to each other, um, you know, the, the, the specimens from their collections. For the merchants, it was, it was one way to enhance their own cultural capital. And this cultural club was spaces, liminal spaces, really outside the larger society, where different forms of social relations start emerging. That is to say, people were, were, were uh, valued for their knowledge or expertise or connoisseurship rather from their own birth. We have instances in which 
members of the culture club were of mixed background. For example, there were high-ranking samurai, but they were also the wealthiest of the merchants. And it was, you know, it's worth remembering that it was not, you know, common to find spaces where a merchant, one of the lowest social classes, uh, and, and a samurai could sit together, talk to each other. So expertise in, in, in plants and animals was a venue for them to meet and talk to each other. Now, I wouldn't want the listener or the reader of the book to have the impression or idea that these were, this was a kind of a republic of letter when all the members of cultural circles were uh, happily enjoying the democracy of this cultural exchange. They were very formal, and it would be naive to believe that the social standing was forgotten. It was just put aside for the moment in which this cultural uh, meeting happened in the clubs. But nonetheless, there were moments in which different or alternative forms of social arrangement could be played, and playfulness of, of it all, the conviviality of these meetings, shouldn't, should, like all games, should be taken seriously. You know? <laughs> And 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 bottom bottom line is that it it reveals the, pop, the large popularity of natural history. That is to say, events organized in Edo or other castle town really gather people from everywhere to go look for exotic birds, exotic plants, or uh, you know going to exhibitions of medicinal plants and. The number, the sheer number of people that were involved in these events is outstanding, really. And it was, as I said before, thoroughly commoditized. And scholars themselves profited from this because they were the experts giving intellectual authority to the different cultural clubs. That is to say, if I am a professional scholar in specializing in Honzogaku, the fact that I am a member of that club or this other club gave the club itself certain kind of relevance. Uh, certain kind of status. But they were also able actually to maintain themselves by publishing books, manual how to cultivate azaleas or how to, uh, how to grow a beautiful garden and so forth. So it was really, in this sense, um, commoditizations of the informations about plants and animals that were, uh, that, that was happening alongside the commoditizations of natural resources for the sake of economic growth. Now, one of the things that these associations are producing um, were pictorial materials, right? And we've talked mm-hmm. a little bit already about the importance of images and imaging practices to this story. Now, there's a whole chapter that we're going to be eliding right here, which looks at um, exhibitions, right. right? And the great exhibition yeah. of 1762, Hiraga um, There's a lot of great material for listeners who are interested in the exhibitions specifically in Chapter 10. But what I want to do is bring us to the next chapter, Chapter 11, which is mm-hmm. looking very specifically at pictures and illustrations. So this chapter, um, Chapter 11, looks very closely at the illustration of plants and animals that became, as you put it here, the main characteristic of Honzogaku production in the last century of the Tokugawa period. The chapter argues that, in your words, accurate and detailed illustrations of plants and animals developed as a new cognitive apparatus to identify species and to match Chinese names with actual plants and animals in Japan. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you talk about um, this in the context of the objectification, right? So an important term here, the objectification right. of species into resources that could be mobilized. So can you talk about that? What's happening in terms of the illustrations as tools for objectifying species into resources for mobilization? Yes. So uh, a number of arguments have been made in chapter 11. And chapter 11 is the only one, the only chapter of the entire book whose stand outside the chronological order of the book. And in it, I, I want to point, I want to emphasize really the importance, the centrality of pictures for a number of functions, cognitive and aesthetic and so forth. One of the points that of, of interest to me is how, as a result, once again, of the surveys of 1736, increasingly you find encyclopedias, textbooks, publish uh, the uh, pictures of the of the birds, of the flower, of the plants in isolations. There is just the plants there. Now, you find it even before. Even Yamato Honzo had an appendix volume in which there were illustrations of the of the plants and and, and, and animals that Kebareki can mention, uh, published in seventeen oh nine was the earliest one. But really, these were colorily, uh, or they were an appendix. They were something beyond what the self-sufficient texts really resolved. Uh, on parenthesis, it should be, uh, I should mention it probably, that one of the constant worry of scholars of Honzogaku in Japan ever since the, the time of Hayashi Razan was, how do I... How do I know that the Chinese name of this plant that this Chinese encyclopedia described is really pointing to this actual plant that grows in my backyard or in Japanese woods or in, in, in the thicks of the forest? How do I make this parallelism? It's, if you think about it, it's very difficult to do. And if in the 17th century that was a matter of uh, philological analysis, these are non-conceptual questions that were supposed to, the people, the scholars at the time believed that were, it was possible to answer through lexicographical or philological analysis of texts. So really the book of nature was first of all a book mm-hmm. of, of nature, right? As a result of these confusions of different names for the same plants, of uh, different plants that having the same name, that emerged as a result of the surveys organized in 1736, more and more you see that the text really was a company, a picture that now has a central role. Now, the more accurate the picture was, the better could it reveal what were the species-specific characteristics of each plant and animal that was depicted, right? <laughs> if any of the listener is a bird watcher, they understand all in a sudden what I'm talking about, right? One thing is reading a descriptions of different kind of owls or birds or singing birds. The other is recognizing, making the transitions from the, 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 the verbal descriptions of a bird to the one that, you know, fly in my garden. Even pictures are difficult to do that. To, if you have a picture, bird watch a picture, picture photograph, I mean, of, of a bird, it's much more difficult for them to 
to to to to to pass from the picture from the photograph I see in my manual to the actual birds flying in my garden. The role of the picture really were to be condensate of what as a result of cognitive labor based on observations, discussions among uh, among scholars and the going back to the sources, the written sources themselves, Chinese sources, Japanese sources and so forth. They, the picture that resulted over these studies and observation was an image that rather than real being, and I'm, I'm doing with my finger, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, open uh, um, a quote mark here, a realistic depiction of, uh, of a bird, of an animal, or a bird, of plants, etc. They were distillated to the essential characters of what was supposed to be a species. Right now, species at this time was conceived of being natural kinds, as it, as they were in 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 early modern Europe. They're not any longer for the neurogenetic field of biology today. So the notion of species is is construction. But what I wanted to emphasize in the chapter was the fundamental role, really, of this picture, both of encapsulating. This is the encyclopedic character of the picture. That is to say, they contain what were believed to be the essential characteristics of the species, not of the specimen, the particular stuffed birds that I'm looking, that the painter is looking and 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 and, and transferring in the bidimensional, bidimensional space of a of a paper, but really encapsulating that image, what were the 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 the, the, the species specific characteristics of. Of, of that bird, the speed, what made that bird an exemplar of a species. And of course, it doesn't come directly from the observation of a living specimen, but also from the knowledge that they have. But also images have the second role. So the first one, they, 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 they collect information. This is encyclopedia. But like encyclopedia, they also have the role to train the eye of the naturalists. So that when he's in the wild, when he's out there in the field, he's already trained to recognize species rather than specimens. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. So in the chapter, I I I I, I, I try to do precisely that. It's, a, it's kind of a philosophical <laughs> argument rather than historical per se. But in, through the historiography of the time, through the sources of the time, I want to reconstruct what were the cognitive processes and the true processes really whereby pictures were able to reveal the truth, the sheen, the essence, the, 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 what is really is the essential nature of one, one, one species on the other. So that's why I said realism in scare quote. Thank you so much, Federico. And, and one of the points that this chapter also makes explicitly or points it emphasizes um, that I'll just mark here is that the epistemological transformations that you're charting here, which may feel familiar to some mm-hmm. um, listeners who are more familiar with the history of um, natural history and the sciences in right. Europe and in, the, in what we might call the West, these resulted from internal dynamics, as you put it here, of yes. the field of nature studies itself, and not from the adoption of Western scientific theories and practices. Now, it's yes. important... Um, to mention that, and that's a point that recurs throughout the book. Um, and so I just wanted to, you know, con- make sure that we, we mention that. Is there anything more that you wanted to talk about um, on that point? Specifically? Yes. No, it, 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 uh, this is, thank you for 
pointing that out. It's to me a very important discovery that I myself made because, you know, when I started my research on the field of Honzogaku and the discipline of Honzogaku, I expected to find a discipline or a field of knowledge that was depending a lot from Rangaku or Dutch studies or at the t- uh, this is the name by which studying of Western text was called. It was to me a surprise to find that before really Franz von Siebold residency in Japan in the 1820s, the influence of Western text, European knowledge was really marginal in the field. And I'm probably, I, I'm not aware that many other scholars have said this, Japanese scholars, I mean, not being at the books about this in, in English. But I'm, I'm pretty much convinced about this, this argument of mine. For a given example, Thunberg resided, Thunberg was one of the disciples of Linnaeus. He resided in Japan and, 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 and he, he, he entertained, he engaged in a relationship with both translator from the Dutch language, but also with uh, naturalists. But there is no trace left after he left for Europe and he published the Flora Japonica, very famous, when he classified, according to the system of Linnaeus, the plants and animals he collected in Japan. But there is no trace that that system was ever applied in Japan. In fact, it was... Now, the Japanese scholars with whom he went into contact were not so interested about starting using Latin to, to, to call plants and animals because they have their own classificatory system. It worked for their own purposes, their own, their own terminology and their own system for recognizing and or indexing plants and animals. So the imp- impact was marginal. What Western books were sought for or were key was to gather information of those plants and animals that were not, uh, uh, that, that the scholars couldn't find in Chinese encyclopedia, or those plants, exotic plants and animals that the Dutch imported through Nagasaki, like cocoa or coffee or tobacco, having other further information of, to clarify obscure points in, 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 in the Chinese or Japanese sources. So, they, but, but all the information that they gathered for Western books were inserted into encyclopedias or ways of expressing those knowledge or classifying those informations that followed the parameter or the patterns of Honzo Komoku, of Ben Salgamo, as it was done since the beginning of the period. They didn't affect the field or the observational modes of the way of the classificatory uh, system of, of natural history until the mid-19th century. And this is a point that I wanted to emphasize in the book. Thank you so much, Federico. Now we have um, just a few minutes and probably um, uh, more than 100 ch- uh, pages, right, <laughs> left of the book um, or something like that. Um, so we, we have come now to the last part of the interview. We've also come to a whole part of the book, part five, the making of Japanese nature. And right. We won't have time to talk um, at any length about this, but I want to just kind of give an overview of what's happening and then maybe ask you to mention um, or talk a little bit about what you feel is most important that's happening in this part of the book. So for listeners, part five of the book takes us into the later part of the Tokugawa period. Now here we see a wider circulation and acceptance of, you know, scare quotes, Western knowledge. um, And as you put it here, a growing intervention of bakfu and domainal administration in matters of political economy. 
Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. And the chapters here, chapter 12 and 13, chart the transformation of what had been a very eclectic, a very diverse field of Hanzugaku in the course of the 19th century into what you call a more integrated and less diverse discipline. Now, um, the, the... the 12th chapter looks at the ways that after the Meiji Restoration of 1868, the name Hanzugaku almost disappears, but the immense information that it had accumulated right over the course of the book that we've been charting this was transmitted to a new generation of scientists, and many of its practices were transmitted um, to what was now called Hakabutsugaku, right, natural mm-hmm. history. Only the name of Hanzugaku died. Chapter 13 looks at the ways that the conception of nature as a resource for economic development arose in late Tokugawa Japan, and it looks at the ways, um, and in Satsuma domain specifically, right, focusing on that, that the recruitment of Hanzugaku scholars into agricultural reform policies at the levels of the domain and um, the shogun um, really kind of affected this transformation. Okay, so there's a ton of really fascinating stuff having to do with political economy, the monetization of the economy, um, the acceptance increasingly of Western sciences by these scholars. There's a lot going on here. For you, is there um, kind of a highlight of this part that you feel, you know, we can't leave this interview unless <laughs> listeners know X, Y, Z. Like, is there anything like that for you that stands out in part five of the book that we have to mark for listeners? Right. Well, I would like to emphasize two points mm-hmm. very briefly. So the first one is really the completion of a trajectory that started with Yoshimune, whereby not nature knowledge became completely uh, integrated with the state apparatus and the states in the form of the Bakufu or our local domains doing the same thing independently in, in their own province to get hold of the economic production. That is to say, getting in, emphasizing the way to, to produce more, to produce different kind of commodities, and also to intervene in the com- commercializations of these natural commodities of different kinds. And in this process, naturalists or experts of Onzogaku played a fundamental role. They were actually uh, members of the state apparatus that were given the task to perform precisely that. This is both conceptually and happened in practice in different in different areas. And to me, that is the completion of a process. And, and, and that is, for me, what explains a lot what the dominion of nature, this Adorno or Keimer argument. And that make my book echo the works of Julia Thomas, Ian Miller, and others that have done in the field of environmental history, Robert Stoltz. All of, all of these you have interviewed in the past postcard. <laughs> podcasts. So I I engage here in the dialogue with these other fellow friends and scholars, given so-called the prehistory, how it happens, what, how did we get to the point of Meiji Japan where, uh, in in quoting Rob Stoltz, you have the subsumption of nature for capital growth, that is to say. The second point that I wanted to make in this last part is that to correct sometimes a view that were, that was present ever since the major restoration. That is to say, Japan forgot everything about this, the dark feudal past of the Tokugawa period and embraced and introduced the modern Western sciences. So Japan forgot everything that is done in the Tokugawa period to embrace wholeheartedly uh, the sciences coming from Europe. 
This is a standard narrative you find everywhere in all the secondary sources about the history of science in Japan, both in Japanese and in English. With this book, I wanted to show that it's much more complicated than that, that in virtue of a very strange uh, convergence, Japan, who developed a market economy similar to such a to certain ex- extent to the one of Western Europe, developed or developed a structure of institutionalizations of nature knowledge and knowledge in general that was similar to the one that was developed in Western Europe. And therefore, the similarity of the way in which Honzogaku has transformed in the 19th century really favored the adoption of Western nature, Western natural history or modern biology, zoology, and, and, and so forth. And I show how it, a process of translation happened, translations of names, translation of certain kind of cognitions also, rather than complete abandonment and adoptions of something radically new. It was a translation rather than than abandoning of Honzugaku. And it, that was in terms of, of, of for, to give you an example, the names that, they, that in the modern sciences were used since the Meiji period to translate the Western categories of species, genus, family, order, etc. They took the same labels that they were using, Honzo Komoku and other Japanese sources to do that. They didn't invent new terms, so they used the old ones now to populate a new kind of classificatory order. Another example, many of the practices of observations, catalogization, indexing, surveying that were developed to Gawapita were now introduced in the new space of the, of the universities. The university itself, the modern Japanese university, grew out from the, from the foundations of the, 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 the Igakukan or the school that the Bakufu built, where all these Honzogaku specially worked, specialists worked in Togawa period. The only thing that really was lost of the history of Honzogaku in Tokugawa, Japan, was the very name Honzogaku. It was abandoned and actually started to, to signify in the Meiji period a very archaic or, 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 or for the purpose of, of, of antiquarian, antiquarianism, this very old discipline of Materia Medica that bypassed all the entire history of Honzogaku in the Tokugawa period that went back to its Chinese roots, as if in search for a more original or authentic, in scare quotes, and, you know, denotated in, in a pejorative and negative sense, authentic notions of Materia Medica from the alienating effects of the modern natural sciences important from the West. So I wanted to complicate this transition from pre-modern to modern uh, fields of knowledge uh, and showing that there is much continuation rather than uh, abandonment and, 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 and introductions of a uh, new field of knowledge from the West. Thank you so much, Federico. And thank you um, for not only a super stimulating book, but also a really stimulating conversation about it. Now, there's, of course, probably two or three more hours um, of conversation that we could have about the things we didn't talk about, um, let alone the things we have already talked about. But um, given that, is there anything in particular that we haven't had a chance to talk about, but that you feel is important to mention for listeners, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it? Well, I, I wouldn't know where to start. There are many, as you said at the beginning, there are many arguments interlocked. What is, for me, important to emphasize is that the question 
I posed were not dictated by the feel of the discipline itself. So I tend to use interdisciplinarity with a kind of a, a rejection of fastidiousness. I like, I prefer recently the term transdisciplinary research because it was the question I asked to the material itself to determine the kind of toolkit, interpretive toolkit that I use. So the questions were very general and, and, and they are common to the questions and natural uh, and historians of science of Europe might ask of its own material. I answer, I address this question in the particular, through the particular lenses of the material at my disposal. There are texts from early modern Japan. And, and I, 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 this is what I intend to do with my, the future of my work. So is to say, starting with questions that may demand of my, of me to, to, to develop new kind of toolkit from other disciplines, but all instrumented the question that I asked myself at the beginning. So I hope this book really can speak to that also philosophical nature of, of the kind of job that we do as historians and not being just one another book on East Asian studies itself. So what are you working on now, and what are the questions that are animating you? So now I'm working on something completely different, and I the provisional title of my second book project is Money Talks, A Social Life of Money in Early Modern Japan. And the questions at the core of my, of my research is what happened to a society where the use of money, silver, bullion, gold coin or whatever was marginal or limited to a certain kind of trade networks at, at the end of the 16th century, the beginning of the 17th century. And by the end of the 17th century, you have a society that could not do without money for the daily transaction. So my question is, what happened to that society? What happened when a society started to be completely mediated by the means of money? It's a question of what is money really, which is almost impossible to answer. <laughs> uh, and, and it is definitely not an economic uh, history research. I'm not an economic historian, but money talks will be developed in in, in, in couple of chapters in which uh, I, I, I reconstruct how people in our different scholars uh, or, 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 or comic poetry or politicians thinkers or uh, aesthetic texts talked about money in the Tokugawa period and other texts when it is money that do the talking. And if money would talk, what kind of society that money, how that Tokugawa society would look from the lenses of money that talks and regulate that society? And what happened to human interaction, the interaction between human and things and objects when all these relations are mediated by money? So these are the questions that will populate my second book whenever it is finished, whenever it will be finished. So do you have three more minutes that I can keep? Yes. Through? Okay, because immediate, so the last, last question I want to ask you <laughs> before we close up, because I think this is fascinating, um, and because I think you're particularly thoughtful um, about these issues, and so I'm going to um, uh, I'm going to press you a little bit on this, um, just because I'd love to hear about it. So if your animating question, right, is what is money? How do you go about and how are you going about for this new project? And then, and then I'll really let you go. Um, creating an archive 
to answer that yeah. question. So what is it what is it looking like for you right now? I know you're like in medias res, right? But what's yeah. it looking like to produce your archive? So my archives ranges from philosophical essays about money and and the expression is kinging, which is the kind of the character of gold, the character of silver together or either gold or the silver, whatever it means, gold itself or golden currency. So it it ranges from this to literature, what we call now the classical to our literature, popular fictions or pictorial representations of money or the receipt of money changer left a lot. I'm working with a lot of receipts now <laughs> and, and edicts from the Bakufu or Domain of Lords about this currency. And uh, I tend, well, of course I went through all the secondary sources and, but I'd like, to I like my archive to do the talking rather than developing a book that really engage only with the dialogue with the secondary material that is uh, the, that is circulating in the field. I'd like also to engage in to, to make the, the archives speaks as much as possible for itself about about the issues. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why, for example, you, you mentioned Adorno at the beginning of our conversation. One of the things that fascinates me about Adorno, why I think I like reading Adorno and thinking alongside Adorno's work, however com- complex it is, is, it is the most anti-systemic or anti-systematic thinker. And it sensitized me to the, to the notion that you cannot have an interpretive model that so you apply rigidly to your material. But there are strategies through which you have to try to discover how the conceptual material that emerged from your archives speaks about a, a, a social reality, a material reality, or an intellectual reality that could not be reduced to the modern concept that we use to make sense of it. It is this difficult contradiction that may emerge from using uh, abstract language that, tries, that, that, that attempts to reduce your material to, to a rigid system or a schema and rather to, 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 to let emerge the complexities, even the t- contradictoriness or the imperfections of the lived life of the people of early modern Japan. This is what I try to do. Well, best of luck with that project. Thank you <laughs> Thanks. so much. Thank you for letting me take so much of your time. Oh, thank you very best much. Best of luck. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for listening and for your support. And we'll see you next time.